What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, November 19th. This is happy hour number 59. 59 weeks in a row, man. We've been out here just having good conversations and chatting. Uh, 59 weeks I've been able to, to see these wonderful people uh, hang out and, and chat. So thank you guys for continuing to come and hang out uh, week after week. Uh, man, keep this thing going for as long as we can. Hopefully you guys got a chance to tune into the uh, the podcast that was released uh, just today with Steve Cardinale. We talked about his book, uh, Syn- I can't say the word, it's uh, Synaptic Alchemy. I don't know why I was trying to say Syntoptic, Synaptic Alchemy, uh, tripped up on that one. But yeah, it was a great episode. I loved his book. We had a great conversation. Hopefully you guys get a chance to tune into that. Um, got a number of wonderful episodes queued up for you in the coming weeks. Next week, we're talking to uh, Karush Alizada, talking about NLP and philosophy. After that, we're talking to um, uh, Christian Espinoza, about the smartest person in the room. And then after that, Dana McKenzie, co-author of the book of Why. So it'll be a great conversation. So hopefully you guys get a chance to tune into that. And if you have not already, Maybe you guys uh, should do it after this happy hour session or maybe even sometime this weekend. I did a live stream with uh, Professor David Spiegelhalter from Cambridge University. It was introduced uh, to him through Marcus Dussotoy. So Professor Dussotoy, thank you so much for introducing us. That was a great conversation. We talked a lot about probability theory and Bayesian thinking and uh, Bayesian reasoning and um, got a little bit philosophical with it, and I really enjoyed that conversation. I just, I, I wish I could do like three hour long podcast episodes. That would be awesome. Just really explore an idea in depth. Um, shout out to everybody in the room. Uh, we got Eric Sims, Jennifer Narden, Monica, Christian, Russell. Auntie is in the building as well. Uh, thank you guys for coming and hanging out. Shout out to uh, to Christian who just landed a awesome, awesome job. Christian, talk to us about this new role you got. Oh, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so I was on my kind of long-term roadmap to get into product and data specifically and uh, came a lot sooner than I was prepared for. But uh, Anaconda scooped me up. They're growing right now. So anybody in the uh, product and data space, check them out. We were hiring for a lot of roles. Uh, we landed a, a pretty big funding round last year or within the past year. And so they're scaling up and they got a lot of new stuff on the horizon. So I'm specifically going to be working with the product and product marketing teams. Um, so you might see some, some stuff, uh, probably already have seen some stuff for me on that. And it's a chance for me to kind of lean in even further to the uh, data community and make sure I'm hearing the stuff that's important to y'all and that our products at Anaconda are reflecting that. So it should be good times. So talk to us about what that, what that like role, first of all, I guess what that, what was the interview process like for a product and data role? Right. Like, because I feel like that's a blend of, um, I mean, obviously multiple different skill sets. Was it heavy on? data science? Was it heavy on product? Like, how do you think about product? I guess that should be the follow-up question after that. So my, my role is a hybrid. It's kind of interesting product marketing specifically, like you sit between obviously product management and like brand marketing. Uh, and in our case, since we're in a condo, we're also kind of, you have a Venn diagram there that includes data scientists, right? Those are our customers. And those are also people that are in the company. So my interview was definitely not technical. Uh, it was definitely more weighted towards, um, let's say product management and business side, uh, a lot of what product marketing is going to be doing is like segmentation and making sure that the things that we're building are matched up to the right people that want them. You've got the right stories in place internally and for your customers, right? So the interview focused on a lot of that stuff, making sure that, um, and really that was what I was doing for the smaller company that I was working before. So it was really just kind of telling my stories of things that we had done. And some of my favorite authors, Marty Kagan, Teresa Torres, the books that they've written have been super helpful for me. I, I could take things straight off of their pages and put them in practice. And doing that really helped me um, to level up some of the operations we were doing in our, our company, but also come away with stories that I could use in the interview. And so it didn't hurt that it was a terrific culture fit. I don't know if you can find a better fit uh, or a better culture, I would say, than, than what's there at Anaconda. So it just all the stars aligned and uh for, for me specifically, but uh, the, the role itself, I think, in the interview process itself was pretty, um, there's like five rounds. So there's a lot of rounds, but I think that's because of the culture thing that I mentioned. You want to make sure it's still a relatively small company and every person you bring in is a big piece of the culture, right? So you had to be prepared for a lot of, a lot of talking with a lot of different people, uh, but it was great overall. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a very, very interesting role. Uh, if you can please do uh, link those books that you had mentioned. I'd love to check those out. I mean, kind of. Yeah, I'll put sounds, them in the chat. Yeah, definitely. Sounds uh, very similar to the role that uh, that I do at, at Comet, where it's just kind of 
creating technical marketing type of materials and creating awesome projects and, and doing cool things with the platform. By the way, Comet, shout out to Comet, uh, just was announced uh, yesterday, 50 million in funding, Series V funding from OpenView and a number of other um, partners involved with that. So huge shout out to, to Comet, um, you know, Gideon and Nimrod and uh, uh, Nico and Drew and you know, everybody behind the scenes doing all the amazing work that uh, got them to that place. So I'm excited to be part of the team at this juncture and excited to see what's going to be uh, happening with us in the future, man. I'm, I'm excited to continue to help that brand grow and, and do its thing. So huge congrats to Comet. Uh, so check it out. If you guys got questions on LinkedIn, if you got questions on YouTube or whatever it is that you are joining us from, please do let us know right there in the chats what your questions are. Um, super happy to, to take your questions on. Um, shout out to uh, to Rick. I haven't seen Rick in a very long time. Good to see you again, Rick. It's been quite some time. Uh, good, to, good to have you here, Rick, from a community member from Days Night Stream Job. Uh, so yeah, do any questions? Anybody want to kick us off with, uh, with a question on any topic whatsoever? Please do let me know. Um, otherwise, I can... Uh, to come up with so something. I may have I may have a this may be a dumb question, um, but I was curious about it. So uh, I have been, you know, I hear about metaverse stuff as much as anyone else, right? And uh, I see Russell's ears perk up when we start talking about that. Uh, so one of the things I was just kind of thinking about is I really like virtual reality and stuff already, um, and I was curious, trying to think forward into what kind of data would we track in the metaverse that we don't already track here um, because you know probably because we can't track it or something and to what to what benefit because i mean i get it like in an all electronic world you can track the number of like kilometers that your eyelids travel in a day from blinking if you want to but like there's really like no use to that so like what kind of like thoughts forward looking do you have thinking about what we would track and what kind of new thing it might open up as an opportunity whether it's business or otherwise i think it would be everything that we cannot track in the real world would be tracked there right because you imagine what the metaverse is supposed to be like it's supposed to be this place that you can go to and live virtually so if you're using a particular company's platform to access the metaverse i'm sure they're going to track all the hangouts that you go to, all the people that you interact with um, and, and things like that, just to, to try to tell you more cool things. Uh, but let's go to uh, Russell and see what Russell has to say. Uh, go for it. Yeah, I've got some maybe off kilter um, opinions on this. Uh, so whilst the metaverse is gonna be big for um, user-centric um, interactivity, I think it's going to be very good for um, for big installations and um, you know um, services underground, for etc. So if we've got a uh, let's call it a BIM model for for one of a better definition, so we have a fully three D modelled um, underground plan of services, say electrical cables. Um, water supply, gas supply, everything that goes under the ground, and it's uh, it's got a date and point to something that's above ground, okay? That type of the metaverse will allow people to go through and survey what's beneath the ground without having to dig up the ground, you know? So I'm sure this happens in, in the States and Canada as well as it does in the UK here. You know, you, you have roadworks, you know, disrupts traffic because someone has to dig up the road to do work and, and that might be essential work obviously there's no getting around that but if it's just discovery work and you don't need to do it that could save uh, a lot of time so that kind of angle of the metaverse this connected data topography of of services and everything that we can't see without having to, to dig up the ground i think that could be very useful save a lot of time and reduce the the overall time that essential maintenance takes um should it be necessary is that kind of the concept of a digital twin? Because what what you know, yeah. I think what I'm you know what I'm imagining is you know you buy you go to the store and you buy a jetpack and you can fly around, right? Obviously not you know bound by the laws of physics here, but what sounds like what you're talking about is having the digital version of a physical of a physical yeah. item as well, kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that does um, cross this uh, entirely. I mean, a digital twin, to be very specific, would be more like say. 
if a building was built in London here and it was built by um, an organization that had multiple um, bases across the globe and say there was a there was a uh, or there was an office a satellite office over in the states and they wanted to be able to go in and have a walk around that facility that was being built they could go into a room with VR AR uh, and other interactive media and literally walk around it at the same time as people are physically walking around it uh, at the original location. So when digital twins uh, are spoken about, at least in my opinion, that's the the uh, the specific description of it. But uh, your, your mention there of, of the underground stuff, I think it's exactly the same thing, but that's kind of um, less specific and more uh, a big network of stuff that could be. So rather than being a digital twin, it's kind of a, a digital representation of it because it, it, it's bigger than a, a single installation. I mean, I'm talking about something that would be spanning miles and miles of, of, of installation, you know, crossing counties, uh, countries even. Um, so that type of thing. A very specific element of the metaverse, certainly not all it's it's good for. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people wanting to, to strap on a jetpack and seeing where they can fly. But, you know, I use it to to the to the greatest of its advantages um that's where i think the the best um benefits are going to come from a couple of uh, comments, comments coming here from christian says eric's question has been curious what types of behavioral analytics will be made possible by the metaverse interactions which are not available currently yeah uh we'll go to coast up next but eric, eric i was gonna say if, if you got amazon prime check out this show called the feed and i think that is taking the idea of the metaverse to its like logical conclusion and it's super super fascinating uh what that envisions um but costa go for it so there's two sides to the whole uh digital twin side of things i mean you're absolutely right russell there's the there's the human social interaction side of it uh where you're representing yourself digitally but there's this entire side of digital twinning that the public everyday human doesn't actually ever see. There's already significant investment going on in defense robotics specifically. Um, so my previous job uh, for the last 18 months, we were involved in a number of defense projects with the Australian Defense Force. Um, looking at how, how can you make a realistic representation of what's going on before actually getting a robot in the air or on the ground or underwater, right? A lot of the time these areas are impossible to really navigate. Right. So there's a big investment, not just from the Australian Defence Force, but across the military complex from across the world, looking at this whole digital twin strategy. Right. So there's that that's kind of a split off side of it. Right. The the metaverse kind of digital twin verse, I think will be more commercial centric. So you're you're kind of seeing this as like a second ripple of that whole idea of digital twins, right? Um I feel like it might be a little bit more commercially focused than necessarily like some of the complications that you would run into when you're looking at underground mining, et cetera, that you're trying to explore areas that you can't really get a good look into, right? As much as ground penetrating sonar is going to give you, you know, uh, X amount of visibility underneath to recreate what would happen. Um, it takes many, many, many iterations of, being able to approximate what that looks like. So one of the things we were doing was uh, approximating seafloor without having seen it at a high resolution before, right? How do you approximate a high resolution seafloor with only a low resolution map? And what I mean is, how do you go from three meters to three centimeters, right? Um, recreating sonar images at that level. Uh, and the problem that you will very quickly run into in a simulation space from there is very much this, um, well, this idea that simulations are always perfect, right? They're always going to be solvable by the robot that you've got in there. And you're never actually going to hit that true world, real world test case, right? So from a commercial standpoint, I think there are still a number of significant real world barriers there. Um, but I think the metaverse slash individual human digital twinning, where you're able to track interactions, where you're able to uh, track, you know, behavioral patterns. I think that's going to be a lot more accessible because there's going to be real world data and there's going to be so many more people contributing to that data. For example, for a hundred people to contribute their social interactions, we've been doing that for 10 years, right? Whereas to get a 
three meter like three meter resolution map of an underwater section of something it'll cost you you know a quarter of a million dollars to run an expedition to run a scanner along the ground right so there is this fundamental blocker within that um the i guess the robotics or the uh like the commercial side of exploration and 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 you know field robotics side of it but i guess that's also something that will get solved over time it's just a question of how much investment goes into it and how long that takes i'm curious in in, in the metaverse are people like operating under pseudonyms like you know what i mean like is it kind of like reddit where everybody can be a dickhead because they're hiding behind a screen name uh, how does this work i mean anyway? i can't imagine that anonymity has always been the you know <laughs> the, the go-to location for online bullying and for all sorts of harassment and issues right so uh, anonymity will continue to be that shield uh, irrespective of whether it's on social media or whether it's on like a metaverse or anything else right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting i would okay. definitely agree with that i was just talking to my wife about that a couple of days ago because you know i get you know very like pie in the sky super cool i want my jetpack for you know like an immersive metaverse rather than a rather than a very businessy oriented metaverse that you know is about you know cables and wires and things like that which obviously it all has its place but like the thing that i can't the thing that i have no idea how we're going to fix and i highly doubt that we're going to do a very good job in the first few tries of it is fixing the harassment of a metaverse because what happened? Like, I mean, I have VR and people are jerks in VR, right? And it's like, what you've done is in the real world, if you get in my face and you irritate me enough, like, you know, because we are like hierarchical mammals and we defend our territory, if you make me mad enough, I'll just punch you in the nose, right? And sure, there are laws and things like that, but I have a mechanism to show you that I'm not going to take your crap for one second longer if I feel so inclined to do so. But in the metaverse or in any electronic world, now suddenly you've given all the tools to those who would abuse them and removed the tools from those who need them to defend themselves. And so like, it's like, we don't have a, we don't have a solution for that in a flat screen world, let alone in a metaverse world, whatever that looks like. Right. And so I worry about that, even just like for the psychological and sociological well-being of citizens of the metaverse or whatever, you know, metaverseians. Um, so that's, I think, definitely an important aspect of it. And I, because I think most people are interested in the, I think most, you know, your average Joe is interested in flying around the metaverse and less so in the more like i guess important and impactful things that you know russell and Costa were talking about so it's definitely interesting to bring that up custom i mean but that that's the thing right eric like we haven't solved that it's not the first time we've seen the the harassment thing take online platforms whether it's social media whether it's on you know we've seen it on bebo facebook myspace weemies we've seen it in you know you jump on a, a game of call of duty online you jump on fifa online right there it's just it's known for this kind of thing right and it's not it's definitely something that we haven't solved we're just shifting the problem to a slightly different digital interaction space right so i'd almost argue that i'd be inherently more interested in the commercial applications of a digital twin world you know in an immersive digital twin world uh, than in say the social ones because there just might be more net positive out of that in some ways yeah that makes sense yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with, with both of you, although I think that the uh, the background or the, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the um, the foundation upon which the metaverse will be built, hopefully should mean that everybody that enters it and has a presence in it has to go through some official registration. So even if it is a non-authentic representation of their human form, I by name or um, uh, uh, look or whatever it is, it can be traced back to them. But what's probably more interesting for most of the people on the call here is if the metaverse is being built and operated within an environment that is associated with AI, can the model be there and kind of have an open ear to listen to all of the chatter and pick up keywords that are um, representative of harassment, bullying, and, you know, put a, put a, 
put a mark against the person. Maybe not just for the, for the one word, but if there's consistent stuff on them, highlight them for review. It goes to a panel for review, and if they are validated as, as being behaving poorly, they're, they're rejected or they're warned, or it goes through some kind of mechanism. So I think that would be a really interesting um, view for that. And uh, secondly, also, I've seen a couple of um, Rick's comments here. He said uh, it could be interesting for, for buskers um, working uh, remotely, which sounds amazing. But then that also makes me think of uh, there could be a, an interaction here in the metaverse for NFTs and blockchain. You know, say a busker wants to play an instrument, wants to play a limited instrument. Um, so say, uh, you know, a, a classic Les Paul custom or something like that. Les Paul might issue it as an NFT and this bus can be seen playing it in the uh, in the metaverse. Things of that nature, you know, it's, uh, there's this huge scope for um, individualization and therefore commercialization in the metaverse. And if it's done properly, I think it's all going to need to use NFTs. Yeah, I mean, that'd be interesting to think about, like, you know, you know, apparently Ed Sheeran used to be singing on the corner with his guitar and before he got famous, right? So imagine somebody who gets a famous buskin on the metaverse, right? That could be an NFT, that moment when he was just on, or she was just on the corner of a street in the metaverse doing their thing before they got famous. Um, so, so is this the genuine first, like, use of a blockchain or NFT technology for, for verification? Like, I mean... Because as much as we've used verification in the past and controls like that, like look at dating apps, for example, right? Being able to verify and trace me back to who I am on a dating app doesn't stop me inherently uh, from engaging in harassment, right? We've, we've heard that time and time again. And though it's been reported, people have been kicked off, but they found their way back on that. Like stalkerish behavior still continues on dating apps to, today, right? And it's like, I, I don't know whether just being able to trace it back to that person is inherently enough of a um, deterrent to that kind of thing, right? So there might be significant other um, changes that would have to happen, which, like you're saying, like if you're, if you're talking about a bot reading into it, then, then reading into every chat or listening into every interaction, then you're talking about like, I mean, I don't know about most countries, but you're talking about, um, at least in the USA, you'd see a lot of pushback on freedom of speech and you'd see all those things, right? So... You're like we end up opening up the same kind of worms that we have in the real world, just in a slightly different world, right? So, like the the busker example is fantastic. Now, that's it's basically what we've seen the maturity of YouTube influencers do now. For a long time, YouTube was this free world to just upload whatever you want, but then in the last few years, we've seen influencers really come along and start to take the individualization of YouTube and package that and actually monetize that and turn that into. You know, exactly like you're saying, that business opportunity that exists from the individual individualization of it. That kind of thing you can definitely still see within a metaverse. And that would be easy to monitor. It would be easy to monetize. And it's potentially still very positive for the world, right? There's a uh, publication on Medium called Building the Metaverse. Uh, John Randolph, or Radoff, rather, is a top contributor there. And he posted something called The Evolution of the Creator Economy. So I posted a link to that there, short six-minute read, but he just talks about these three different types of eras, pioneer era, engineering era, creator era. Uh, and I'm interested to see where, where, this, uh, where this goes up. Just kind of a, a newbie question here. How do you access the metaverse, right? Is it only going to be like, is, does each, like, is it going to be like the internet where I just, you know, have different pathways to get onto the internet? Is there one metaverse? Is it only Facebook's metaverse? Like, how does this shit work? Yeah, that's so, also another interesting question. Uh, sorry, you go ahead, Eric. Okay, sure. I was just gonna take one stab at a thing I've at a thing I've read, and so like, in order to be a metaverse, it has to be cross-platform. So like, Facebook can't have a metaverse, right? Facebook can have a planet or a galaxy, right, inside a larger metaverse. And in order to have a true metaverse, I need to be able to leave the Facebook metaverse and go to the artists of data science metaverse seamlessly. I have to be able to take my identity, my avatar, my name, my money, everything with me, just like as if I was going to get on an airplane, take my passport and go to a different country or something like that. My identity would, would follow me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that, I think that to me sounds like I'm actually super like pro that because 
I like the idea of having like a, I like, I like having a unified identity. I like being me. Um, and I don't necessarily want to try and manage like being one character here and some other character here and being a semi-normal like person like character here and, and all of that. And that's actually kind of what you see in uh, like Ready Player One, right? Which has shaped a lot of what we see today in, in virtual reality. But I think that's a key hallmark of the metaverse is, has to be seamless transition between platforms. The artist of that yeah, yeah, I, I like the sound of that. I'd agree with that as well. And and kind of tying together what you were saying there, Eric, and what Kostov was saying earlier, um, I'm seeing an evolution of NFTs here where we kind of reverse the NFT. And when, you know, every individual is born on the planet and they get an identity, you know, rather than just being given a passport or an identity card, they are given a unique NFT that will stay with them for the rest of their life. And then everything they purchase electronically has its own NFT that's tied back to their own. And it only transfers away from that if they trade it away somewhere else. And by that kind of <clears throat> forward and back um, NFT uh, um, universe, if there was poor behavior, you could always trace back what it was through to the current owning NFT, which equates to a single individual somewhere in the, in the physical world. I, speaking to you guys all together now, that just that's just kind of clicked to me that I think that's the best way that the whole systemology of this metaverse is going to work. Every single person has their own unique NFT, and then every item has an NFT, and you join them together within the metaverse. What if what if you could just kind of riffing off that, Russell? What if you could expand that to its real world uses? Okay, so today, what's the biggest issue with international travel? It's ensuring that the people who are traveling are vaccinated, right? So each country has come up with this QR code and they've got their own PDFs, they've got their own ways of verifying, their own ways of communicating that. And countries are basically settled on this QR code that goes that interacts with databases. But then each country has to set up that network. But when you have an NFT system like that, you can actually verify all of those things potentially in a much more connected manner, right? Um, it seems like just the next kind of step evolution to that. And you can do a lot of things. I, I mean, what tying back to this metaverse, right? What if you could map the social interactions and like we don't have a fine-grained real-world physical social interaction map just yet, right? What if you could actually map and simulate that for spread of something like COVID-19, right? That's the kind of thing that really intrigues me in this whole thing. And uh, I think... To a point, what Rick mentioned in the comments is, um, in the chat, sorry, is uh, NVIDIA's Omniverse. What they're looking at is how can you get many, many, many different connected creators and be able to create virtual reality areas, whether that's for gaming, whether that's for robotics. The, the proposal I've seen in robotics is how me and teams from around the world can come together and build this uh, simulated reality for a robot. And we can test it in its hundreds. Hey, hi. Got, got Greg and Greg's son here. Hi. What's your name, kid? Noah. Noah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are yeah. you? Up good. Thank you. Good. My, nice my, my, uh, my baby's right. hanging out with us, too. He's just sleeping right now. He's, he's hanging out. He's, he's <laughs> All right. Greg, sorry, sorry, sorry yeah, for no. the destruction. No, all good, man. Good to see you. Are, you. are you still in San Francisco? No, no, no. I'm back home. So uh, nice. staying awesome. with the little one today. Awesome, man. That's awesome. All right, sorry, on, man. Yeah, no, no, all good, man. Uh, feel free to hop in on uh, on any questions or, or any topics or let us know if, uh, if you got any questions or, or anywhere you want to take the topic, man. Let us know. Right now, we're just talking about NFTs, the metaverse. I've got all sorts of like questions going on about this metaverse thing man like I, I, you, I mean okay let's think about uh, the youtube algorithm has a hate speech detection algorithm right so there's like some type of policing that happens when you're being you know a, a dickhead on on youtube if these type of things exist in the metaverse right you have these cyber police type of entities uh what what would that look like, man? Like how how would we 
yeah I'm, I'm just curious any thoughts on that anybody have any ideas on that I'm, I'm just curious where that where that goes I think I think we can say fairly confidently, um, Heartbeat, that what it should look like is not Demolition Man. Does anybody remember that movie from the nineties? You know, with this, uh, yeah, yeah, with this utopian thing, you know, where people are speaking and they say a curse word and they they get given a citation of like one credit every time they say something, mm-hmm. and you know everybody's just being monitored everywhere. Uh, so I mean, that was like early nineties, if I remember. So, so it was quite an immature assessment of the future at that stage. But it's good material for us um, of what not to do, I think. Christian, I saw you were uh, unmuted there if you want to jump in. Oh, Uh, go for it, Kosev, or or Christian, if you uh, want to jump in there, go for it. I got distracted. Sorry, so my question's out of my mind now. (laughs) Okay, no, no worries. Kosev, go for it. Yeah, I mean, like that that kind of meta-policing in a sense, uh, that would be very, very strange. There's this, there's this weird philosophy, right, about humanity. We don't do things because it's right. We do things because this, the fabric of the social contract that we have is mutually beneficial, right? If we, there, There's this entire theory in psychology that a lot of the things that we do because they're morally correct are only because we're in the visibility of the rest of the world. Right. Take, for example, Australia's facing that a little bit right now in the public eye is uh, the, the cricket captain. So I know cricket's probably not the biggest topic out in the States, but uh, it's a sport. It's kind of like baseball. Um, and basically the captain of the Australian team, uh, he's stepped down yesterday uh, because of a lewd messaging scandal, right, um, from like three or four years ago. Now, had that not surfaced publicly, he's been the captain for the last three years. Right. It's only now that it's in the public eye, he's standing up to, oh, this is what the Australian captain should live up to this standard. Right. So there, there is, and I'm not, I'm not picking on him, like, you know, all things considered with recent Australian captains, he's been one of the, uh, you know, one of the better ones from a moral standpoint. But uh, like all things said and done, there is some element of truth to that philosophy. Um, so if we're in a world where, you know, like Demolition Man, where everything is watched, everything is controlled, uh, would we actually be humans anymore at a philosophical level? I mean, that's a deep question, man. Would we and beyond be that, in, a metaver- in, in a metaverse? I, and, I don't know. And, and beyond that, if we were forced to do the right thing all the time and we didn't, weren't given the choice to do the wrong thing, how do we know the difference between good, if we're, between, if we're actually inherently good or we're just forced to be good? It's, what makes us good is having the right to be bad and choosing not to. Well, I mean, what if good or bad doesn't exist, right? It's all become subjective. So like you mentioned, it's all about right. the rules or the frameworks or axioms that we're operating under. Right. And what's, and what's right today? Like, I think, uh, J- uh, what's his name? Jimmy Carr, the, uh, the uh, British comedian. The, there's something he said that was quite, quite profound. The joke that cancels him has already been said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So there's this interesting twist to what is morality, and all of that blurs away if there's this forced sense of mor- morality. Anybody want to jump in on this uh, or, or provide some insight? Because uh, it's going to be an interesting direction. I, I, I think that is quite interesting. And, and uh, I think people that have malicious or malevolent intent can try to um, engineer that <clears throat> to their benefit or to achieve their ends. So say if someone had an agenda against the, uh, the, the Aussie cricket captain there, they've been rifling through his history for maybe six months to find something that they can then surface publicly that would have the achieved result. And, you know, nobody's going to be perfect. Everybody, including probably everyone on this call now, will have done something in their past that, that they regret now with the, with the view of a, a current assessment of morals and ethics. And sometimes that's simply because... The world has changed and everybody's matured. Sometimes it's because, you know, you've actually grown into a different person and it probably wasn't great at the time and you now regret doing it. Either way, you know, if you're a much better person now and you've moved beyond that, I kind of don't think you should be punished for it now. You should be judged on the person you are now rather than something you did. Certainly if you're talking about three, four, five years ago, um, unless it's, you know, an absolutely horrendous crime. I mean, you know, say it's murder or something like that, you know, perhaps that's a different kettle of fish. But if it's 
you know, tweeting something that's a little bit offensive and someone puts that in, a, in the papers and say, look, this wasn't quite good. Or, you know, a, a blackface has been something that's been big press for some high profile people. Um, you know, the, the time is different and I don't mean to support it or condone it, but uh, assess it. Sub, um, sorry, objectively rather than subjectively. And I think it's very difficult to do those things subjectively because they're so emotive, especially if it's something that's to do with race or gender or any discrimination whatsoever. If it can be viewed with, through the magnifying glass of some discrimination in the modern age, it's very unlikely to be um, accepted that, you know, you wouldn't do exactly the same thing now because it's such an emotive subject, you know? I mean, what's, what's that? What's that age-old saying? I can't remember who the author of this is. I used to know, but uh, the past is a different country. They do things differently there, and I think that speaks volumes to a lot of these topics that we're talking about right now. And I mean, Eric is spot on. Statute of limitations exists within the within the realm of the legal system that we have in the real world, but when we talk about a digital public world, all of that melts away in the high court of public vision right uh take like there's there's a lot of accounts of this and i'm not saying that any of those accounts were wrong or rightly so it's not not making a judgment call of that i'm just saying that the rules change entirely that idea of having uh, the ability to change as a person if you're tracked through everything you want to do if you're given an nft the day you're born russell doesn't that kind of go against the ability to change as a person as well then i mean it's not like you're you 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 know your personalities, your traits, you know, your thoughts and all that is etched into an NFT. I think that that's, that's not possible, right? It would be more, I don't know, man. This is but you could still but you still that. could be traced back to it and judged for it, right? Yeah. 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 I, I I'd say I don't think it'll it'll stop you being able to change and mature, but it'll provide um a, a ledger of your journey of maturation. So if anyone comes to you and says, oh, well, you said this kind of thing, you know, five years ago, that's very misogynistic. So you probably don't have a great view of women. You could you could go back to your NFT ledger and say, yeah, you know, I can't deny having said that. But look what I've done since that's been completely antipathic to, to that, you know, and, you know, I'm a different person to what I was there. And, and this is how I can prove it rather than just um, hyperbole, you know. They used to tell me that. Yeah, definitely go for it. What I was going to say, the idea of uh, Web 3.0 is to have a decentralized everything, right? So um, kind of like power to the people, literally. And um, if you have limitations in this physical world, uh, my concerns are that some of those limitations may disappear because the many voted so. Uh, so governments, government entities will have a hard time uh, intervening in this sense to uh, dictate what needs to happen on the on the on the cyberspace. Uh, you know, making sure they control abusive behaviors, et cetera, et cetera, or uh, enforce certain you know tax uh, uh, requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, in Web three point will continue to fight that. Um, you'll see that uh, people will be will have the capability of get, getting different you know personality, you know, different behaviors, and things like that. So. Um, it's, it's, it's something that I think most people don't know how things will play out. And uh, that's probably why I think, you know, government or big governments are kind of cringing today uh, to figure out what, what's going to happen. I mean, look at what just happened yesterday. Um, yesterday, uh, there's this group called Constitutional Dow. I don't know if you guys heard that. So they try to take a bet to purchase one of the 13 copies of the USA's constitution. Uh, they won, but they were able to get 20,700 people together. Each of them put, actually, I got the number. I marked it on my, on my notebook here. So, average, $200, $206. $206. Exactly. Yep. Oh, what happened to Greg? Uh, Greg had, uh, had has disappeared into the metaverse. We'll wait for him to get back. Um, yeah, this, I mean, it's, it's really interesting topic i think i would definitely spend more time researching web 3.0 and and the metaverse just to get more intelligent about it um i don't know what's your guys' levels of, of understanding in general the rest of the group here when it comes to this stuff is it just something you've heard about in passing are you actively studying it uh just just out of curiosity um let me know 
you give me a thumbs up if there's something that you're actively interested in actively uh researching and, and studying yeah awesome uh greg is back sorry guys my so my uh laptop died sorry that's what yeah. i get for uh <laughs> working upstairs yeah so yeah yeah to, to your to your point um they raised like 41 million dollars uh and the the other bidder uh that was you know i guess counterbidding you know eventually won but what they wanted to do is uh use ether to purchase that's that constitutional uh paperwork and rent it to uh you know a museum like the smithsonian's or something like that and maybe the smithsonian would pay that DAO group some fees uh and and you know and maybe whoever has you know nfts under this DAO would be remunerated as some sort and things like that but it's kind of like the idea behind the people uh getting back you know their uh power their freedom and things like that and that's what i think 3.0 is trying to achieve uh with all these things so it's it's an interesting space to live or to be uh when you think about how uh, a, such a small group of people was able to come up with $41 million. Think about other things that could be done in terms of how fast uh, they can raise money for other causes. So I'm uh, quite interested to see, you know, how these things uh, happen over the next couple of years where the, you know, the boundaries will be eliminated, right? So you could just spend a couple bucks or uh, fractions of a, dollar to a country uh that doesn't have necessarily have the infrastructures or physical infrastructures uh and allow them to uh create you know do sales with each other uh you know with with low fee transaction fees and that's that's what we're trying to do a lot of countries for example venezuela uh or uh what is the other one something in latin america rely on you know bitcoin to create transactions and and and, and earn livings uh, at very low transaction fee with the lightning uh, um, feature that they have. So it's uh, it's crazy what's happening, and I'm just curious to see more. Yeah, I mean, could could the metaverse and could blockchain be uh, the answer to immortality? Let's say your thoughts are a blockchain ledger, your consciousness is a blockchain ledger. Can you up upload that into this metaverse and live forever. I mean, the it's possible, right? These, I mean, it it's if you take it to that conclusion, I'm just curious what people think about that. Well, by that, by that token, I guess Marcus Aurelius and those folks have already achieved that, right? There. Yeah, yeah. Is a very journal still lives today. His thoughts impact our lives, but him as a person is no longer around to witness that. So maybe it's a, some sort of extension of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Eric talking about when we're brain in a jar. I'm just going to hang out in the metaverse all the time. Yeah, same here. Uh, but yeah, definitely something I'm going to spend more time researching and 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 thinking about. Um, it's in other news. GPT three is open for all without a wait list. Uh, I'm excited about that. I've never got a chance to play with it. I've been on the wait list for forever. Uh, so now I'm glad I don't have to uh, uh, to to play around with that anymore. Uh, Greg, thanks for hanging out, man. Um, have, have any of you guys got a chance to play with GPT-3 or, or do anything with it whatsoever? Um, I'm probably going to try to see if there's an integration with Comet that we can uh, work with and uh, create content around that. Um, but I'm just curious if anybody has had a chance to play with it. Yeah, I've done, I've done a little bit with it. Um, uh, there's some hacks I'm involved with using the engine to try and generate um, human equivalent um, syntax and, and, and text bodies to summarize long form written content and send it out automatically as say weekly updates, uh, you know, just, just, just bytes. It was, it was interesting. And I've been meaning to, to post about it for a while actually, because the, the whole system is very impressive, but has its, has its gaps as well. You know, it, it, it's kind of like, a uh, an, an early school pupil you know it, it's really excelling in some areas but there's a lot of gaps there and if you know which areas to look at for the gaps you can really make those gaps very noticeable um but it's a it's an impressive thing it's just not a, a completely um 
which is not a complete entity at the moment. It needs, it needs a bit more work, needs needs to be um, spread out. But at some point, yeah, I'll, I'll probably post a bit about it. Uh, some of the things that I did, just asked some very simple questions for things that don't make logical sense to something that thinks completely logically has to, you would need to, I mean, a child probably could answer this question, but you'd need to, you need to think kind of laterally and a little bit creatively to answer it. And the GPT-3 system, uh, system doesn't have the capability to do that as well as a human at the moment. Yeah, I mean, except the, you, can, you can have GPT-3 spit out a bunch of stuff, but at the end of the day, it's still gonna be a, a human who has to sift through that and pick out the comprehensible bits of that. Uh, Posted a link right here in the chat, another medium publication called Data Driven Fiction. And people are like publishing like fiction from GPT-3. Uh, so it's, it's worth checking out. Um, so shout out to uh, Eric Riddock. Riddock is in the building. Never uh, seen you here before. So welcome, Eric. Uh, if you got a question, let me know. Uh, how's it going? Um, yeah, questions, comments, let me know, guys. Uh, we've been we've been deep into the metaverse today. Uh, looks like I do my homework on the metaverse so I can get more smart about this because uh, it's it's coming, my friends. Um, any questions or comments coming in from LinkedIn or YouTube? Let me know. Uh, at the moment, there are none. Um, how about the room here? Any questions? Any comments? Anyone want to take this direction conversation in a particular direction? I was gonna, I was gonna do the GPT three thing, Harpreet, but you did it before I could, so yeah, my wells run dry. That's all I got. Yeah, yeah, I'll be excited to play around with it, man. I know it's a huge, huge model, and uh, probably take forever to, uh, to download and and get started with. But but I'm excited, man. Um, Eric, go for it. Right, There's like a totally like basic question, not metaversy at all. So I'm trying to understand. Like the difference practically, I tried to quickly Google it and didn't really get much. I'm trying to understand the difference practically between like SQL Server and Redshift. Now, this is like what I, you know, what I'm doing on a daily basis because I'm doing stuff in SQL Server, but then we have certain things that are stored in Redshift. And and I was querying and lo and behold, I stumbled across the list ag aggregation function and it like made my life so much easier because i could take rows partitioned over you know an id and put them in a nice like list so that i could show the path that a, a customer had traveled or whatever it was awesome but there's not exactly a list ag function there is a string ag function in sql server but anyway i'm just trying to understand like why why i just don't understand why so many different sql metaverses even exist and then like why is like why does redshift matter and why does sql server matter it's like a basic question but i don't get it yeah these different sql engines that's kind of what they're called they have their own underlying you know i mean it's all sql but they have their own flavors and different types of syntax uh, i see marina is uh, unmuted so marina if you want to jump in here uh, definitely let us know um but that's that's like that's like the different sql engines they all kind of have their own spin and take on on sql um as far as i know redshift is just like a cloud sql database right um aws version aws yeah uh marina any questions or comments yeah no no i i had a i had a question um i don't have an answer for eric so okay. um like sorry yeah. Let's, uh, first, let's see if anybody has an answer for for Eric's question. Um, that's that's my understanding of it, Eric, because I know there's subtle differences between what I do in Postgres and what I do in MySQL, uh, and it's just because the the different SQL engines, I guess. That's that. That's what I've found on a, a Google search, and I've just ran with that. If I can, I feel like, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of advantageous if you're a cloud provider because it. I mean, from like a vendor lock-in perspective, like all the SQL scripts you have right, they're only going to work with like Athena data warehouse or like, I don't know. Actually, I think it's the only thing I really know of that uses Redshift. Like, is there is there something else you, you run Redshift queries against? No, that's that's where, that's where I'm running it. So I guess that makes sense. Like try and lock them into your, like Sony having their own version of an SD card for forever or whatever, which is actually just really annoying. <laughs> But it and makes one, sense. One thing too is that since it's like corporately sponsored, I mean, they can like people have a reason because like with open source projects like Postgres, well, I guess Postgres has sponsors too. But like, but if if a project's being sponsored, you can sort of like manipulate it towards the aims of like you know whatever the goals of the sponsor organization has. So like, so AWS like 
And one nice thing about them sponsoring it is they have all those sweet plugins, not plugins, but they have like sweet features. Like, I mean, depending on the version of like Postgres or MySQL you're using, like there might not be window functions or like if you're running window functions, they might be slow. But like with Redshift, like I think it, from my understanding, everything I've ever used has been like fairly optimized and it's been there. Like, I don't think there's ever been a SQL function I've wanted to use that Redshift didn't have. So like, so, which is another way, honestly, you can get locked in because then you're just like, ah, oh, this is so convenient. I have this thing and now I, now I can't leave. That makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. Okay, so it's a business thing and I just need to deal with it. Or start my own. That's just yeah. going to rule them all. Yes. <laughs> if One we make a language you. called Eric Query language. It's uh, maybe interesting to turn that on its head and think, you know, if the metaverse comes off the ground and works, is that going to hark in the age of a, a single coding language, a universal coding language? We won't have SQL and Python and, and R and Ruby and all of these different ones. Will we consolidate to a single universal language to, to make the metaverse more responsive? It'll probably be English because that is the lingua franca of the internet. Uh, so natural extension is, yeah. Uh, Marina, go for it. Uh, yeah, no, no. It's um, if anybody had experience with um, um, graph knowledge, right? So and um, like kind of like graph databases from relational databases, like and what is a good um, way to start if one wants to start? Like I know, like the uh, Neo four J seems to be used by many people. I, I don't, but I I just don't know. I just um, was lazy and I thought I can ask here and <laughs> avoid doing a little bit of research if anybody has any thoughts. Yeah, Neo4j is the only one that I know of. Anybody else got any insights onto this? Let me know. Uh, somebody who I who I think um, might be a good resource to follow on LinkedIn if you're not already following him, uh, David Knickerbocker. Um, I'll link to his uh, profile here. I think he's actually writing a book on a uh, graph. Um, he does like NLP and, and like networks and stuff like that. Eric, you're kind of into that network stuff, aren't you? Uh, yeah, just I haven't done like graph database stuff, but I know, yeah, like you said, David Knickerbocker, if you just look through his like hashtag 100 days of networks posts, he has a yeah. few posts in there that have like a stack of books for, you know, and I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've looked at um, a bunch of it. Um, but are you like most interested in, graph data like databases or just like working with graphs and networks in general um, um like in general um like well i don't know yet right so but i like the idea that also you you know you can um you you can work on the links too right so it's not like the databases by itself but then i i found the beauty is going to be like in the links right so yeah. if you can um, not just only the nodes, right? And then you, you know, like you can be uh, many kinds of products. If probably, if I understand, uh, you know, like the uh, the links. I, I think you know it's very, you know, I I think it's very powerful in that sense. Definitely, um, you could check out Tiger Graph. <clears throat> Tiger Graph is uh, pretty interesting. They have some, so they're like a, a platform, but they have some helpful uh, tutorial videos, kind of explaining first off, like how to use their platform. Um, but they also can, they just have helpful, uh, like you can get a free, like a free version where they have some projects that they'll walk you through and show you how to like, how different edge, edge relationships would exist. Like you were talking about. Um, so I've, I've and liked learning from them a bit. And then the other is, I just dropped a link in the chat to the Stanford, it's called SNAP. I don't know what SNAP stands for, but it's from Stanford University. And actually, I think the one I just sent you is just the Road Network in California. But anyway, you can click up like to a page above it. And they have big network examples because it's really easy, not really easy, but you can usually find toy networks that have 30 or 40 nodes, but it, you can't, it's difficult to find something that has a whole bunch of nodes to have fun with. Um, like the California road network is one that I worked with a little bit. That one's fun. That one's good. Um, and then there are several other ones and they're different types of networks in case you want something that um, has different kinds of relationships. If you want to look at like internet traffic or road traffic or products, different things like that. So um, that that's a sweet resource. I really like. Cool. 
Thank you. And if you say it's easy, then <laughs> must be easy. <laughs> yeah. Good. Thanks. And I've actually Eric, been thinking, Eric R. Yeah, go for it. Oh, yeah, sorry. I've, I've been thinking a ton about graph databases recently. And so the reason why is because I've, I've been writing a GraphQL API and I was like, graph is an API name. It's in the database name. Like they must go together. And so when I was, when I was looking into this, like I, I came to find out that almost nobody uses our graph database for GraphQL. And th that's kind of a tangent, but like, but one thing I learned when I was investigating, because I was looking at Neo4j, I was looking at like Janus, which is another open source graph database. I was looking at like, and TigerGraph looked really cool. Like TigerGraph seems like it's really performant. It just seems like the cloud solutions, like they're really expensive. So, um, so yeah, what I, what I learned is that like, so graph databases, they fall into like a camp of just like no SQL databases. So, I mean, we just, you know, divide all the databases between SQL and no SQL. And like, because like, I'm an MLOps engineer. And so like, so like we're always thinking about like performance and stuff. And so like one of the, when you, when you go to the NoSQL question, like it's, it's always some sort of trade-off because like relational databases are just like awesome. Like there's basically no data you can't model somehow with a relational database. And so, so even like GraphQL APIs, like basically everyone who does a GraphQL API, even though they're, even though they allow you to query data as though it's a graph, they use a relational database to power it. Because like, if you think about it, what a graph database gives you is it lets you store metadata about the relationships of two things. Like if, I, if I'm like a customer and then if there's like a customer's entity and there's like a store entity, my relationship could be like maybe the trips I've taken to the store or something like that. And so, you know, there's all kinds of data you might want to store about the trips I've, sorry, there's all kinds of data you might want to store about the trips I've taken to the store. And so, so the way people achieve that with like a SQL database is they just, they just make a, a table in between. So you got like your, your person table, which is like Eric, where Eric would go, and you got like your stores. Then you have like an association table, which yeah. that's like what it's called. Like you just put all the data there. And so like, so yeah. And so like, and I was like, but Neo 4 days sounds so much cooler because like my queries would run fast and like I would be able to like model the data as flexibly as I want. And so I, I just like, this is just like, you know, the the limited human experience that I have. But, but Neo4j, like one issue that it apparently has is it doesn't really scale beyond the amount of data you can store on like a single computer's hard drive. Like it struggles to like, you know, like it doesn't really scale horizontally. I don't know if, I don't know if that makes sense to you at all, but like it just, it made my understanding it's not really built for that. And like, it's also written in Java, so it has the JVM, which is like a big problem for like, you know, RAM usage and stuff, if you care about that. So like, so yeah, like if you do want to model data graphically, um, Joins actually aren't the worst thing in the world. I mean, SQL databases, they were written to handle large, large joins. But uh, there's also another cool thing called select and load that you could look at where you don't actually do a join. You select a subset from one table and then you run another select statement on the next table to like get what you want. Like that's probably going too much into the weeds. But like, but yeah, but you know, I know graph databases are really cool. But the, the thing is, if graph databases were amazing, like who wouldn't want a graph database? Like, all data is basically a graph. And so I feel like the reason why they're not as mainstream is like, you know, I would think they would be is because they kind of have these like performance, they have these performance trade-offs, you know, like, like everything does. Thank you very much, uh, Eric. Or I appreciate that. That was a very in-depth uh, answer. Learned a lot for that for sure. Uh, anybody else have questions, please do let me know. Um, Eric, Kate, uh, Bess Onova on LinkedIn is asking for the tutorials that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you had linked. Um, I'm not sure which one that was in particular, but if you do recall, please go ahead and uh, post that link again, and I'll be sure to share that on LinkedIn with Kate. Any other questions on anything whatsoever, please do let me know. If not, we can begin to wrap it up. Uh, great conversations. Learned a lot about the metaverse and uh, actually give me more motivation to go ahead and, and study that uh hopefully you guys get a chance to tune in to the uh to the, to the podcast remember that the episode with steve cardinale uh, his book was really cool really enjoyed it uh so enjoyed talking to him about that uh number of episodes going live that are going to be uh early part of december going live with nick singh author of ac data science interview going live with uh both the gentlemen from one salting um, I'm sure you've uh, heard of them. Uh, there's Javier, and uh, I think it's Javier's the guy's last name. Oh my God. Uh, I'm going to have to edit that part of the podcast. Uh, but both the guys from One Salting um, will be on the show. Looking forward to that. And um, speaking to uh, Grant Fleming about his book, uh, Responsible Data Science. Uh, that's going to be a, a great conversation talking about uh, 
how to do data science in an ethical and responsible manner. So I'm excited for that. Um, guys, thanks so much for joining in. Hopefully um, we'll be back next week. Next week is, is next week Thanksgiving? It is, yep, right? Next Friday is the day after. That's right. So uh, I should probably cancel uh, that because I don't think anybody's going to show up. Last year was different because nobody can go Black Friday shopping. Uh, so everybody was hanging out. Uh, but I guess next week I'll, I might cancel that. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but you know what happens from next week on? I'm going to start rocking those Christmas letters for sure. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Uh, thanks, guys, for hanging out. Thanks for for chilling and, and talking and you know expanding my mind on a number of things. Uh, remember, my friends, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>